Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning, the chosen, the 30 chosen who chose to register and chose to look at the temperature and still show up at church. Well done, well done. Have you ever thought to yourself, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself? I grew up with that statement. Uh, I heard it a lot from my dad uh, growing up on the farm. It seemed like at every turn, he was always saying, well, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. Typically, almost always, it was because I was given some tasks to accomplish, uh, and things started out okay, and then things somewhere along the line went horribly wrong. Take, for instance, uh, seeding. Um, Dad would get us out to check uh, the seed boots to make sure that they weren't clogged so that seed was coming through. But that was a lot of work, getting out of the tractor and crawling down on the ground. And eventually, one time, I got bored, and I figured, and tired of it, so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to leave it. Well, I ended up seeding half a field with only half the seeder working. I thought, who would know? Two weeks later, was I ever in trouble? Or about the time during harvest, when I was hauling grain, uh, just old enough to look over the steering wheel of the grain truck, and in a mad uh, panic with my dad's instructions over the CB, I hit the wrong pedal, the gas, the accelerator, and sideswiped the tractor um, while we were unloading on the go. Terrible, terrible things. It seems like my dad was always saying, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. He'd also say, you know, there's... There's, there's two ways of doing things, or three ways of doing things. There's the right way to do something, there's the wrong way to do something, and then there's Christopher's way of doing things. I think he said that because my way was neither right nor wrong because it never really got done. It must have made quite an impression on me because I find myself now as a parent saying quite often to myself, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. For instance, hey kids, why don't you help me pick up all the sticks in the backyard that the wind blew down? I come back later, and I'm not sure what they did. I think they stomped on all the sticks because there was more twigs and sticks in the backyard than when they'd first set out. Or sure, Matthew, I'd love for you to help Daddy shovel the snow. And he starts shoveling everywhere where there need not be any shoveling at all. And I clean off the walk only to find my son shoveling snow back onto the walk I just cleaned. I said, son, what are you doing? And he said, but dad, it's the nice clean spot to put my snow. Can hardly argue with his logic. There's just a certain way that we want things done, isn't there? And this is particularly challenging for task-orientated people. But aren't you glad that God is not that way with us? That God, the sovereign one, the perfect one, the one who does all things well and good and excellent, excellently, that he chooses us. He chooses you. He chooses me to be a part of his work. Imperfect people alongside a perfect God. In many ways, this is an aspect of God that my dad modeled to me so well. That meanwhile, he'd be frustrated, annoyed, and I'm sure disappointed at my farming performance. He persisted in helping me learn the ins and the outs of agriculture and farming. That is, up until I quit on him to become a pastor. One of the ways that we participate in the work of God here in the world is through the spiritual gifts that he's given each and every one of us. 
That's the topic of what we're discussing today. This notion of spiritual gifts given to us from God. And it's vital, it's crucial that as Christians, we understand the role that we play in the gifts that God has given us. Now, in just a few minutes, you'll see, uh, you're going to see a number pop up on your screen. And in a few minutes, we're going to jump into a Kahoot. Uh, so if you've got your mobile devices and you want to play along, that's in-house or online. Uh, you can get that ready and Harry's going to queue up uh, the number there for you. Um, but before we jump in, I just want to explore, you know, the key question for today is this idea of what gifts and skills has God given me to serve others? And while we're talking about spiritual gifts this morning, I'm not going to be talking specifically about each and every spiritual gift that there is, but rather we're going to jump into Scripture to lay a foundation to understanding really something really important about spiritual gifts together. The hope is, is that we're going to work towards, um, as we continue on, this hope that the key idea that at some point all of us are able to say, I know my spiritual gifts and I use them to fulfill God's purposes. That's the goal for our lives, is to be able to make sort of that statement. And to get there, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, so you can get ready to turn there. Um, but let's jump into Kahoot at this moment at this junction. So here we go. I love these cahoots. I'm doing another poll, uh, and when I told people that, they were so disappointed because they like uh, my uh, student ministries assistant, JJ, said, oh, I just like the quizzes because then I can win. I want to be able to win. I said, don't worry, you're going to like, I like to phrase the questions in such a way that when you're asked, you're interested in seeing how other people have responded during this poll. So here we go. We're going to jump in with our very first question here. It's simply this. If I was asked, and this is from your perspective, if I was asked to explain what spiritual gifts are, I would, and here are your answers. One, have no idea what to say. Two, know what passage of scripture to go to for an explanation. Three, answer the question with a question. What do you think? Those clever and evasive among you will like that answer. And number four, this idea of be able to share from my own experience about my gift. Um, you can kind of be all over the map when it comes uh, to spiritual gifting, but let us know where you stand, what answer best describes kind of you uh, with that question. And if you want, if you're like, I agree with none of those, you can abstain and it'll just, st- you'll still get to follow along with us on the next question, uh, but you, I'm not going to force you to answer, of course. Um, but check the one that's best uh, for you, and we're going to go to our results here fairly quickly. Here we go. Oh, awesome. So here we go. We're looking at, uh, whoa, majority of people said, and I'm having a hard time reading that. I think that's be able to share. Oh yeah, be able to share from my own experience about my gift. That's awesome. And there's only one person uh, who would, oh, only one. I bet you, Phil, that was you, wasn't it? The question, the, the one, no, it wasn't. The, the questioners of the question, right? Those, those ones that are, would follow up with a question. That's awesome. Great to see you guys. Okay, second question. Here we go. How would you respond to this statement? I know my spiritual gifts. Would you first, would you say, yep, I know every one of them by name? Or two, I have a fairly clear idea of at least one of them. Three, I know they are a thing, but I'm not sure what mine are. Or number four, I'm pretty skeptical about spiritual gifts. And you can plug in your answers there. 
I know for me, it always gets me questioning that when I start thinking about spiritual gifts, I always have a pretty good idea of like maybe one or two, but then I kind of get a little bit foggy from there. There just seems to be uh, so many different options, and there's a lot on spiritual gifts. But the hope is today that we're going to bring some clarity um, in regards to spiritual gifts this morning. So as we take a look at our results, I'm not sure if they're up there yet. I'll give it a few more seconds here. Here we go. Awesome. Right on. The first one I noticed uh, is obviously 22 people there uh, weighing in about, um, I have a fairly clear idea of at least one of mine. Yeah, totally. It seems like everyone's sort of uh, mostly in that category. And one, awesome, talking to someone who's pretty skeptical, skeptical about spiritual gifts. That's awesome. I'm excited that you're joining us uh, this morning. Um, Heading on to our third question. Here we go. I think the purpose of spiritual gifts are to, and you can select the one that best describes, give people a way to participate in the nature of God, is one answer. Build up and edify the church, is a second answer. Three, reach non-believers, is a third answer. And four, I give you that classic all-of-the-above response. Now, you're probably looking at these and chuckling a little bit because I'm totally leading you somewhere by asking these questions, aren't I? As you look at it. And it's kind of online with the topic of where we're going. And I'll let you punch in your answers there, and I, I think I have a hunch of where the results will end here on the purpose of spiritual gifts. We'll jump into if our results are ready. Yeah, there they are. Oh, hey, oh, okay, 29 people saying, yes, definitely all of the above. And then awesome with uh, four people saying, uh, build up and edify the church, which absolutely in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is, is uh, and 13 and 14, he's all about the gifts that edify the body. But the majority, yeah, multiple purposes for sort of the spiritual gifts that are given. And here we go. We're going to jump in with our final uh, poll question this morning. It's this. In order to grow more in my spiritual gifts, I would like to, one, have more information about spiritual gifts. Two, have someone to talk to about it. Three, take a test that would help me identify them. Or four, start serving in a way um, that would grow my gifting. And you could reply there, uh, kind of your own, what would help you grow in your spiritual gift the most here. And I'll let you give you a chance to respond. But I wanted to be a little bit sneaky with this last question because here's, here's the thing. Uh, those in-house, you're a little bit excluded from this, but those of you that are online, I've sent Karen some links, and here's the deal. If you've answered the very first question, and guys, just bring up the results when they're, when they're ready. Um, we want to see everybody taking a step to grow in their spiritual gifts. And so if you answered that you want more information about spiritual gifts, on the chat right now that's happening online, uh, I've posted a link to an article from the Desiring God website um, about desire, eagerly desiring spiritual gifts. And it's a, it's a short article, it's brief, but if you read it, it gives tons of insight uh, into what spiritual gifts are and even kind of next steps and places to look. So if you're wanting more information, the link's going to be up in the chat and it'll be available for you to, to take a look at. Also, if you're saying, hey, I'd really like to just have somebody who knows a little bit about spiritual gifts or just somebody even to be a sounding board to talk to about this, well, here's the good news. 
Staff at Hillcrest, myself in particular, would love to have a conversation with you about that. And so if you want, get in touch with our church in our office, and we would love to set up an appointment. It could be a phone call, it could be a Zoom call, or we'll find a safe place to meet, and we'd love to sit down and chat with you about where you're at with spiritual gifts. So there you go, kind of an, a call to action and engagement. Number three, uh, if, you, uh, take the te- if you'd like to take a test um, that would help you identify, well, I recommend you go, um, there's, there'll be a link. It's simply giftstest.com. And it's a church out of the States that's developed a website that kind of runs through sort of 22 spiritual gifts. And it literally takes like five minutes to do... Um, to do the the questions, and you get kind of printed off a nice little summary that tells you sort of what your spiritual gifts are. So mine, I I ranked high in teaching, craftsmanship showed up there, and then I must have been having a fairly optimistic day because administration also showed up there. But anybody who would look at my office would say, I'm not so sure that's a gifting. It's maybe more of an aspiration. There we go. And then the last one, this idea of start serving in a way that would grow your gifting. If you were there, and it looks like a lot of you by our results actually landed on those last two questions, but then one of the best ways for you to grow in your spiritual gift is to actually just start using it. Don't wait till you've perfected it or fully understand it. Just start employing it and serving with it. And I know with this season that we live in with COVID, you have to get a little bit more creative, but I'd encourage you to do that. Start serving in a way to use that gifting. And if you're not sure what that could look like, again, I encourage you, contact the office. I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you uh, and throw out some ideas about how you can get growing in your spiritual gift today. All right, thank you so much for participating in our Kahoot. I always enjoy that part um, of our service. As we jump into Scripture together this morning, I'm going to take a, a, a moment just to pause and pray, um, but we're going to land in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you've given uh, gifts to us, Lord, that you want to invite us to be a part of the work that you're doing here on earth. And Lord, thank you that you do all things well. That even when we uh, stumble and fall and get things so wrong, Lord, you're there to coach, to correct, to encourage, and to see us succeed. We ask, Lord, that as we turn to your scripture, that you would open it to our hearts and that you would encourage us from it. In Jesus' name, amen. It must be the teacher in me, but I'm sticking fairly close to Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, kind of really guiding our discussion uh, for today. So there'll be a lot of scripture, but it's sort of all uh, packed into that uh, passage. And I'll try to go quickly through it because I really want to get to the end of this message, not just so I can let you go, But because the final point, I think, really is a point of absolute significance that's paramount for Christians to know and to understand. And so as we jump in, it's it's kind of great because the way that Paul has written this, as we walk through the first three verses of chapter 12, it really gives me an opportunity to unpack some of the context of where this chapter lands and the the discussion that's going on um, in Corinthians already. So here we go. So we're going to look at sort of the situation in Corinth, uh, Corinth. Jumping in with verse 1, it simply says this. It says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So Paul's letter, it's at this junction in his letter that he's really going after something that the Corinthians have written him in a previous letter that they're asking him about. And it's that little phrase that now about 
the gifts of the Spirit, that's worded there, that is sort of the, the, the literary indication that Paul is addressing questions that they've asked. Now, we don't actually have the letter that they wrote. We only have Paul's response. But it's kind of possible to reverse engineer sort of what their argument was, and we'll be doing a little bit of that uh, as we walk through this. And while he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, we have to know that Paul isn't setting out here to do uh, an intensive instruction on what the specific spiritual gifts are, okay? His matter is actually much more corrective. Paul has a bit of an agenda, You see, the Corinthian church was a little bit of a mess. And things like spiritual gifts, they were were actually getting a bit distorted and getting it wrong. And so while it is instructional, Paul's address here is actually meant to be somewhat corrective. And so we need to read it sort of with that uh, there. And as we go on to verse 2, we get a bit of a hint of what he's talking about. He says, you know that you were pagans, that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Interesting that he uses the word mute there. But also interesting is that these are pagans who have become Christians. These are the best kind. They're, they're Christians with a checkered past. Okay? And how many of you know that when you got saved and embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, everything didn't get fixed right away in your life, right? There was stuff, there's, I'm, I'm still on a journey, you know, uh, of working things out, working out my salvation and, and, and seeing rightness brought into my life. But it's interesting here, this idea of mute idols, idols that cannot speak. Well, as incidentally as it goes, uh, chapter th- or verse 3 actually explains it a little bit more. He says, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There's a contrast here between mute idols who say nothing and do nothing, in verse 2, and speaking by the Spirit of God, where gifts are in operation. Interestingly enough, Paul is contrasting these two things, saying, you used to, you know, go to mute idols that couldn't talk at all, and now I want you to know one, no one can say, Jesus be cursed, if they're filled with the Spirit, and only by being filled with the Spirit can you say that Jesus is Lord. You see, what happened is that the Corinthians uh, stumbled onto this speaking in tongues component. This gift of speaking in tongues. The other chapters in and around this area kind of flush out this argument a bit more. But what happened is they they settled in to speaking in tongues and they emphasized it sort of as like, this is the gift. This is the mark. We have arrived that once you've got speaking in tongues, once you've had that experience, you don't need anything else. It was all the evidence, evidence they needed that they were participating in this new spirituality of Christianity was this notion of tongues. And, and Paul wants to come and, and bring some correction there. And, and this is such a critical verse. We're going we're gonna to actually swing back around to it a little bit later. In verses 4 through 6, uh, Paul is really laying down the theological context for spiritual gift. And this is so important. It reads, uh, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same 
God at work. You see, Paul is laying down, and it's very Trinitarian, even though Paul wouldn't have used the word Trinity. Look at the way that he understands the nature of God and the nature of gifts, uh, service, and working, as they're all rooted in the nature of who God is. Different gifts, same spirit. Different kinds of service, same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God who's orchestrating it all. We see that the diversity of gifts is rooted in God himself. We move on to chapter, or on to verse 7, and this is the what and the why. This is a critical, critical verse about these gift services and workings. Here it is. It says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. What do you think of when you hear the word manifestation? When I hear that word, I can't help but think of sort of like a ghost, especially when you're thinking of a spirit manifesting itself, right? And a ghost would sort of be this apparition of the spiritual nature with something that we can see. And, and that's not what Paul is talking about here. No, no, no. It's not a ghost, but In the same way, it's the way that the Spirit becomes visible among us is through our gifts. Isn't that interesting? And that these gifts are meant for the common good. Um, Daisy uh, Richardson pointed out during our staff meeting, she really liked the way that the NLT puts it, and I like it too. It puts it so that we can help each other. You know, because this notion of common good, while someone's silence would be better for the common good at times, right? This idea of common good could have sort of a different nuance to it. But it's this idea that so that we can actually help each other. That's what our gifts are for. Now, this actually challenges us as Christians because we recognize that gifts aren't primarily to the benefit of the person who has that gift. It has others in mind. That's why the gift is given. Often, we can make gifts all about us, can't we? We get a notion of sort of what God has gifted us in or what he's called us to, and then it becomes all about sort of, well, how do I grow in this gift? How do I excel in this gift? How do I sharpen this gift? How do I, how do I work this gift? And in some ways, um, it becomes all about utilizing and expanding our gift, but it's not about self-aggrandizement or self-satisfaction or even personal growth, but it's about helping other people. And this is a great check for us as Christians because sometimes we're like the gift at all cost. It's my right and God has given me this and by golly, I'm going to do this. And we don't realize that we're steamrolling people in the process. And Paul here is challenging and I would say that if the expression of your gift is at the cost of somebody else in a way that it harms them or hurts them, I would say, whoa, that's, that's in direct violation of what this verse is going for. And there's lots of leadership coaching that gets this right. Uh, I'm involved with a group of guys that were kind of walking through uh, some John Maxwell stuff. And I love it because John Maxwell's stuff is that he actually gives credence to this where he says, you know, this growth and leadership and focusing on improving yourself is great, but it has to be set within this bigger picture of it's meant to serve other people. And we'll kind of jump through here, uh, verses 8 to 10. Um, Really quickly, I won't even read it, but here Paul is giving some examples of what spiritual gifts are. In fact, he lists nine of them. And if you're looking at the verses there as they click across the street, the screen, we'll see there's a, through, uh, given through the Spirit, there's a message of wisdom. 
There's a message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit. Then there's faith that is given by the same Spirit. There's gifts of healing. There's miraculous powers. There's prophecy. There's distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different tongues, and then the interpretation of tongues. But you see, as I've said earlier, Paul isn't actually instructing about the specific gifts of the Spirit, but he's certainly giving us some examples here. But it's not an exhaustive list. He gives us another list later on at the end of this chapter, and it's different. Interestingly enough, all the lists that Paul gives in Corinthians has tongues listed in it. And in fact, here, tongues is listed last. And I almost think it's because they've so overemphasized this notion of speaking in tongues that it's become like clickbait to them. That once they see it or once they hear it, that's all they start thinking about, right? It just consumes their thoughts. It consumes their mind. That's all they're kind of thinking about. So cleverly, Paul puts it at the end of this list so that they pay attention to the diversity of the gifts. It's kind of like, you know, uh, when you're scrolling on your computer. And for me, it's ads for tools. Like that is the greatest clickbait ever. Like I'm just, like I'm home, Home Depot. Canadian Tire, like I'm just a new tool. I don't even know what it does, but I know that I want it, right? It's just, that's the way it is. We can be so gift-focused and all planned out, but we actually can miss the nature of the Spirit if we're too emphasized on the gift. And I actually think Paul sort of goes in this direction because he says in verse 11, he says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes to each one just as he determines. You see, spirit and wind are the same word in the Bible, in Greek. And often it's like in John 3, 8, where this is how the spirit is described. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Through these gifts, there is a presence of a force unseen, guiding and moving. You can determine its effects, but not its essence. You sense its leading and its direction, but it's hard to predict where it's going next. Just like the wind. And I think that plays out in our gifts, that it's not so easy all the time to nail it down precisely. There needs to be this notion of a bit of mystery when we talk about our spiritual gifts, gifts, just as there's this mystery with the leading of the wind and the leading of the Spirit. Now things get kind of interesting. Paul moves on here in verses 11 through 14, and he's talking, he brings in an analogy to try and help the Corinthian believers understand. And let's jump in. It says, just as the Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Later on, he says it more explicitly, but he's saying, you are the body of Christ. And he, this is, he answers how this is so in verse 13. He says, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many There seems to be an important shift here from talking specifically about gifts to talking about people now. And this notion that people make up the body of Christ. And that it's 
excuse me, it's via the Holy Spirit that this is what distinguishes a believer from a non-believer is this spirit that is given for the common good with gifts for the common good of all. It's interesting here that he says Jews or Gentiles. There's two groups that just really didn't mix in the first century. It was Jews and pretty much everyone else who would be classified as a Gentile. They just didn't mix. It was kind of like oil and water. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22, here's how uh, Paul puts it. He says, Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, get this, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You couldn't get two more varied groups than Jews and Gentiles, yet both at the preaching of Christ were drawn to Jesus and receiving the same spirit being different parts that form one body. And even though they're vastly different, the thing Paul is encouraging is your identity as forming the body of Christ needs to be central. We must not overlook this appeal that the understanding of your function, of your gift, of your purpose, of your plate, of your place, needs to be in light of this new identity of being a part of the body of Christ. That you're not disjointed or set apart from, or set apart from it. This analogy helps us understand the very differentness in gifts, and I think even personalities and the way that people think. You know, there's people that you just, you feel like it's sort of like the mixing of oil and water that you just don't totally get. And you're like, they're Christians, but I just, I don't totally understand. Well, this analogy really helps us understand our differentness. Understanding that we can be as different as a hand is from a foot, but know that it's about our identity as the body together that brings unity. He goes on in verses 15 and 16. Therefore, differences really should not be something that divide. Uh, Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. We can see that there's a comparison that's happening here that Paul is getting at. And this is a trap for us Christians, too. We think that just because we're different or we're not like that other prominent person or we don't have that gifting, that there's a tendency to think, well, maybe I don't belong. But that's absurd. In the same way that my hand could not say, because I'm not Chris's face, I don't belong to his body. Even if it believed it, it wouldn't make it so. The problem lies here with our understanding, friends. Do we tend to think that unity means uniformity, where we're all the same? And the question becomes, do we as Christians, do we have a heart for the whole body of Christ? Or do we only have a heart for the part that looks like us? It's a challenge. Paul goes on uh, to kind of flush this out more. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Think about that. If the entire body was just an eyeball, that would be gross right? Or if it was just an ear, 
Just a detached ear. Uninspiring, right? Not appealing. You see, if it's all one thing and you have uniformity, it's not a body, it's a monstrosity, right? The point is, is the need for all members or some function of the body would be missing. And God is sovereign. He's placed all parts. He's placed you exactly where he desired you to be. Wired the way that you're wired for his purposes. Going on, verses 21 to 24, he continues on with sort of the personification of the body parts. But it's headed along a different idea. It says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Get that? Eye to the hand, head to the feet. There's a sense of hierarchy here. Apparent hierarchy. Verse 22, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. I really had to do some digging to figure out what Paul was actually talking about here. And I was a little shocked and surprised to find out. This notion of indispensable, he's talking about internal organs where they seem weaker because they're housed inside of a protective layer of our body. But as the saying goes, uh, this bicep is not inept. It can pump iron, but what, O liver, is it that you deliver? Have you heard that one? I just made it up. I'm just kidding. But but it's sort of the notion where we think there's a hierarchy or that we don't actually need another part of the body. But an apparent weakness has no relation to their actual value and necessity to the body. How many times do we as Christians look at another part, another member of the body of Christ that we don't totally get and we think we just want to dismiss them, think that they're not necessary? Uh, We claim to be a bicep questioning the function of a liver, perhaps. And this idea of less honorable or unpresentable, and you may blush at this, but Paul is talking about our private parts here. And he's saying, what do we do with those parts? Well, we show them special honor because we cover them, right? And then he moves on to this, but our presentable parts, like our faces, you know, we leave uncovered. That is until COVID hit. And now we also cover our faces. Which gets me thinking about summer. I mean, on a minus 34 day, who's not thinking about summer right now? I'm thinking, you know, I'm picturing, like, we'll be able to go, you know, you'll be a macho man, you'll be able to, like, walk shirtless around, but probably have a mask on in public, which I think is hilarious. And then it leaves the question of, like, tan lines now for summer, right? Like, the facial, you know. Anyways, I digress, I digress. Bodily appearances are deceiving all parts are necessary. And in verses 24 and 26, Paul summarizes, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, and that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. If one part suffers, we all suffer. If one part wins, we all win. You see, it's not about competing, comparing, 
or criticizing within the body, but it's about mutual concern for each other. That if I, uh, if I, if they hurt, then I hurt. And if I hurt them, I've hurt us. How productive are you on a day at work when you have a toothache? Have you ever had that? I had that once operating in the camera at the back of the church here where I'm filming worship, doing my best, and for some reason it was the headset was pushing on a nerve in my head, and all of a sudden I got an incredible toothache, and I broke out into a sweat, and I could not focus on my, my task, and I'm sure Cam's eyes went super wide when all of a sudden I just leave my station because I'm like, my tooth is killing me. I can't focus. It's the same way in the body that when there's a part that's hurting, the whole body is rendered ineffective. But it gets us asking this question about our purpose. I'll try to move on quite quickly through here. Um, but this illustration of a place setting, have you ever seen those magazines um, or even the stuff on TV documentaries where, where it's all about like place settings and tables and hosting and it's set up immaculate, like where there's a tablecloth, perfect table settings all the way around. Everything matches. Like if the plates are slightly square, the cups are slightly square and the utensils all match and everything is perfect. Almost to the point where like it's not actually functional. Like you don't want anyone to touch it. And in many ways, the pictures, that's what it's set up for. Guaranteed, nobody sat down at those tables and actually had a bite to eat. Guaranteed. It was all just for the show, right? To go like, you need to buy this place setting, right? That's not how it works at the Drinnen house. Oh my goodness, you look in our cupboards, very few things actually match, right? We might get a couple of ceramic plates, but then there's a Hello Kitty one, there's a Buzz Lightyear one. We got pink and blue sippy cups on the counter. Like, like this is the way our table is set. No, like we don't have any decent tablespoons. Like I don't like, anyway, but none of them even match, right? Like it's, but here's the deal. It doesn't matter when it comes to its purpose, because even if they're all different, they're, they're working towards the same function, the same purpose of feeding my family. And isn't it so true in the body of Christ that we can look different, be radically different, not even match, be as different as a hand is from a foot or a liver is from a bicep, and yet it's about our purpose. So what is our purpose as the body of Christ? Well, I'd like us to go back. I'm going to kind of skip down. At the, at the end of this chapter, in chapter 31, Paul says, now eagerly desire the greatest gifts. And then he says that famous line, he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And it leads in right into chapter 30, that is all, or sorry, leads into chapter 13, which is the love chapter, which is all about love. And now Paul isn't creating a contrast here where he's saying it's love versus gift. Oh, no, 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 no. He's saying that love is the only context for gifts. That you can have the tongues of the angels, but if you don't have love, you're a clanging symbol. As it is with all of our gifts when they're not utilized and operated in this context of love. Gift focus makes it mechanical and cold, but love is always vibrant as it considers others. And that's what Paul is wanting to encourage his listeners. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, he gives this summary. He says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire 
the gifts of the Spirit. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. So what is our purpose? Well, as we loop back to this notion of verses, verse 3, remember that one? Where nobody by the, nobody by the Spirit says that Jesus be cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is weird because we can actually say those words, right? And does that mean we do or don't have the Spirit? Like, what is Paul getting at? It seems a bit confusing. But think of these statements in terms of first-century believers. The nature of saying Jesus is Lord is a radical proclamation. In our Bibles, we render it Jesus is Lord. But if you jump into the Greek, it's saying the Lord... This is Yahweh using the personal name of God. Yahweh is Jesus. It's it's a strong statement for the divinity of Jesus. You know, the the tetragamma, the the, the, the name that's used for God throughout the Old Testament, it's rendered in our Bibles as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's Yahweh. It's used here. And now think about this, that if if you're a Jew and you hear someone say, the Lord is Jesus, Jesus is Lord, it's a blasphemous statement, right? Or at least profane talk. And so if you said Jesus is Lord around Jews, it would be sort of, they'd be put off from you. But then also, you didn't really fit with the Gentiles anymore because they believed in many gods. They were pagans. We just, there's no problem with adding one more Lord to the mix. And yet you're saying, no, 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 no. We're not adding Jesus to your list of lords. We're saying Jesus is the Lord, the King of Kings. And so none of your gods count. Whew, that's pretty offensive. So in one statement, the statement that became the earliest confession of the Christians is this, Jesus is Lord. It's believing that through Jesus, through his resurrection, became the exalted one of God. The Holy One. Powerful statement. But what Paul is saying is that you cannot make that confession without the impact of the Holy Spirit revealing that to you. That's at the heart of it. You can't say that unless it's revealed to you by the Spirit of God. And now I know we've been talking a lot about gifts and and we can get excited about our gifts and we should be excited about our gifts and we should be implementing our gifts. But in our gatherings and with our groups, is it the operation of the gifts that's most important? Is it the operation of the gifts coming to light Is that the evidence of the Spirit among us? Well, actually, with Paul putting this here, he's saying not so. He's actually saying the ultimate criteria for the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord. Which in turn is expressed in loving concern for others. You see, we begin to have Um, this notion that our gifts are meant to serve other people, not just ourselves. And it's okay if you're a little foggy on what your gifts are. But if you're emphasizing and moved in love, that as faith arises in your heart, 
that you act out in your gift for the benefit of other people. To what purpose? Well, think about what Jesus did when he was here on earth. It was all about inspiring people to put their faith in him, right? Come, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so now, we don't have Jesus physically in the body here with us anymore. We're left as his body. What now is our job? Well, our job is to inspire faith in other people through love. And you know what? When you're motivated by love, you'll use whatever gift necessary to reach someone else. Right? I'll end with this thought, and then we're going to go into, uh, Pastor Steve is going to come up, uh, and he's going to lead us in communion at the Lord's table. But I give you the, the illustration of me working on the farm. You see, I love working on the farm as long as my dad is there. If you take my dad out of the equation, the farm holds zero, I mean zero appeal to me. But while I'm there, I love it. I'll work that tractor. I'll dig those holes. I'll pick those rocks. I love it. Because my dad is a great farmer. He's so passionate about it. And it's hard not to get wrapped up in the enjoyment of that with how much life it brings to him. In the same way, I think it should be with us and God. That even if God is calling us something that's not necessarily according to our giftings or our abilities, but it's an opportunity to love somebody else, why wouldn't we jump into that? Because the focus isn't about your function, about what you're doing or the service you're providing, but it's about the love that you're showing. And Hillcrest, I think if we're moved by the love of God, the faith that's in us, We'll do absolutely anything to show the love of God to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members who don't know him. Pastor Steve, as you come, I'll just close this in prayer. God, thank you for your gift. Thank you for the gift of salvation that upon our confession that you are, that Jesus is Lord, we find forgiveness of sins and rightness in your sight. And Lord, that you bestow on us amazing gifts to be grown and used and utilized, but not for our own glory, but for yours. Lord, would you help us? Would you forgive us for the times we haven't served because we didn't think it fit with our giftings and we've been unloving in the process? And would you stir us with your love, with deep faith, to love others, Lord God? And to see many one for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much for sharing in the word of the Lord with me this morning.